Welcome to Live Brazingly. I'm your host, Jessica Van Valkenberg. I'm the founder of Brazingly Beautiful Bodies Without Shame, a yoga instructor, and a body confidence coach. Live Brazingly is a podcast for women who are tired of beating themselves up over their bodies and ready to truly learn how to love their bodies and themselves. I'm your guide, a light maker and cycle breaker. I'm on a mission to break painful cycles of body image which are considered normal in our society and to expose the powerful connection between movement, breath, mindfulness, and feelings for healing. So sit back, relax, and learn how to live brazenly. You're worth it, gorgeous. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Live Brazenly podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Van Valkenberg, and I am so excited to be here with you today. Thank you for allowing me to come into your headphones, into your car, into your home, whatever you might be doing today while uh, listening and binging some of these episodes. Hopefully, I hope that you're having a beautiful day. So today, I just want to get started. This is a new podcast for me, and I am repurposing some of the material that I've been using on my live show. I started the live show back in the pandemic when, when the pandemic was first kind of getting going, and I needed a way to be able to talk about my business, and you know, I wanted to feature female voices that were important to me, and really just create like a safe haven, a safe harbor for women to care and love and know about their bodies. So my mission is really to just break against the norms that hating your body or feeling dissatisfaction with your body is the norm. And our society considers that to be okay. So, you know, my mission is really to break against that and let women know that you're not conceited, you know, you're not full of yourself you are beautiful and wonderful, and you're allowed to feel that way. And so taking the shame out of the situation and the relationships that we have with our bodies. And I didn't always feel this way. I want to share a little bit about my personal journey. It's been, you know, quite the journey of development and learning as everyone's story is. But I'm just really grateful to be here. And so I want to share my story today because if it can inspire anybody else to know that you can change and you can come out of a dark place or, you know, you have the ability to kind of manifest and shape your life, I I hope that maybe I can share that for you. So I started out as a dancer. I was a professional dancer, but even before that, I danced when I was younger and by younger, I mean, I started at age three and continued until current (laughs) and I just loved dancing. And one of the things that I loved about dancing was just the ability to express my feelings, the ability to move my body, to feel good in my body. And so when I was younger, I would just create dances and choreograph uh, dances. And then I would always imagine performing and all the praise and adoration I was going to get. So that was always a big, a big part of it. And I think a lot of performers can probably relate that, you know, the applause from the audience is what makes it all worth it. And, And that feeling of being appreciated and being adored was something that I really craved even from a young, young childhood. 
So, you know, I love dancing and I continued on with it. And I remember people would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up and I would always say a dancer, but then there was like a phase where I thought, well, maybe I should do something else. And so I thought about, you know, doing other things, but ultimately in the end, I just loved the performing arts. I loved being a part of the dance community. And I just decided that that was what I really wanted to do with my life. And so when I was younger, I just did what my dance teachers told me because I had a lot of natural talent and I had a lot of natural ability. And so I just followed with what they told me to do. And I was very successful naturally without having to try too hard. I had great genes. And so genetically, I just was perfect for the dance world. I had the perfect dance body. And I never even thought about, you know, not really being good enough. Although I think, you know, self-criticism comes up for everybody at every point in our life. But I don't remember it being that serious for me. I don't remember it really affecting me until I got into college. And then once I decided that this was going to be my profession, that I was going to major and get my Bachelor of Fine Arts in Dance, Once I did that, I really realized, oh, this is the big time and this is serious. And so I started to feel a lot more pressure and my body began to change. I gained the freshman 15. It was my first time away from home. My mom had cooked my meals before that and I was eating in the dorms and I was drinking and I was going out and eating pizzas at 2 a.m. and living the college life or so I thought which was really not doing anything for my body. I was like staying up late and I was just doing everything because I had never experienced any of that before. And so I was doing all that stuff and really my body started reacting and it it gained weight and not a lot, maybe like 10 or 15 pounds, as I said. But that was the first time that I really began to struggle with my appearance when it came to dance. And The messages that are from the dance world are very old school. They're very much like you, it doesn't matter about your talent. Your body is your instrument. You have to take care of it. If you gain weight, then you obviously don't care about your body and you obviously don't care about your career. And you should probably just go back to school for something else because you're never going to make it in the dance world. And I heard that over and over and over again. And one of my, you know, character flaws, you can say, but it it also can be a character asset, is that I'm a perfectionist. And so anything that I did, I, I couldn't just do it. I had to do it perfect and I had to be the best. And so I put a lot of pressure on myself. I I opted in to get my Bachelor of Fine Arts rather than just getting my Bachelor of Arts. So my program was a lot more extensive and you know I, I just put a lot of pressure on and also asked for pressure without realizing it from my evaluators and from my professors. And so that was the first time I really started to feel displeasure with my body. Everything was about the way that I looked. And and I can remember, you know, a professor saying to me, like, this is your grade. You have a B in this class, but if you can, you know, work on the body and maybe lose some weight, then maybe by the end of the semester, you can have an A. And so I just really felt like it was so much... tied to my worth. I felt like my worth and my value, talking about a grade, I felt like my value was so tied to my appearance. So as I neared toward the end of my four years, 
in college, I really began to just do everything that I could to lose weight. And I went up and down with my weight. And when I would be down, I would be praised and adored. And, you know, I would get A's. And then when my weight went up, I would feel like the cold shoulder. I would feel criticized. I would be called out in class. I would be picked on more. And it just, it got to the point where it was very hard to separate it from my value. And I always say that if you are an artist that uses your body as the medium, it's very hard to separate yourself from your art. When you're a painter, let's say, you can paint your picture. And if someone says, oh, that portrait is so ugly, it sucks, you have no talent, then, you know, that that might hurt your feelings and that might make you feel bad. But when you're a dancer and someone says, oh, that sucks, you have no talent, you, you are terrible, it's you you are the medium. So it's it's your body. And so it was very easy for me to hate my body, blame my body, shame my body on a regular basis. I was dabbling in eating disorder. I was, I was not really full-blown there, but I was doing everything I could. And if I could have been more anorexic, I would have been, but I would just get really hungry and then my willpower would take over. So it's whereas like some people struggle and you know, they think like, I really, I'm, I don't want to eat donuts, I'm going to not eat them. And then their willpower takes over and they eat them. It was more like my willpower was like, the same way it was like, I'm not going to eat anything. But you know, I had to eat something because, hello, we need food to function. And I think a part of me never wanted me to go too far. Like, I think a part of me knew when I was starting to get into dangerous territory. And so I did get some counseling and some therapy. And that's really when I started my journey with therapy. And I realized that maybe this wasn't right. And that maybe it was the institution, but it was so hard to go against the institution because it just, that was the word. And and I think a lot of dancers and maybe gymnasts and people who are in these kind of arts type avenues can relate when it's just like, that's just how it is. Like people just say that to me all the time. Like, if you want to be a dancer, that's just how it is. And so I really just, I wanted to be a ballerina. I wanted to be successful, but I just kept hearing like, you'll never be good enough. This really like, like you did a good job. You graduated, you made your thesis, but good luck. You know, we hope you find a job, but we just don't know. So I did end up auditioning. I went through a really kind of weird period after that, where I remember saying to my mom, I don't want to dance anymore. And she was like, what, what do you mean? Like you've been dancing your whole life. You just, you know, they had helped me pay for college. She's like, I just paid for all this Bachelor of Fine Arts. Like, what do you mean you don't want to dance? And she was supportive. My parents have always been very supportive, but it was just a dark period. I just didn't know, as I think a lot of young people, when they get out of college, they all of a sudden are expected to just like have this career and start their life. And nobody knows you're still young and you still have a lot of life ahead of you. And the, the economy was not doing really great then. So I did what a lot of my fellow students did. And I moved back in with my parents and got a regular job with a regular salary so that I could pay for my car payment and, you know, just pay, make my bills. But I was auditioning. And so I had heard of the show Jubilee because it was a show that was on there was an e-series about it called like Almost Famous, I'm a Las Vegas Showgirl. And my mom and I used to watch it. And I remember that, you know, it was on E and this was back like when E had some really good shows. And I remember that the person who was in charge of it 
on the show was like telling the girl, oh, your rolls are rolling over your G-string. Like you're so fat. And I, and so like, that was always kind of in my mind. And I, and I was a little bit scared, but it was also, I was like so intrigued because the costumes were gorgeous and it was Las Vegas and it just was so intoxicating. So I happened to find an audition and it happened to be in Chicago, which was a drivable place you know, a, a drivable location from Michigan. And so I got in the car and met up with a friend and we went to the audition. And I remember walking in and they, the first thing they did was measure us because you had to be very tall. You had to be at least five, eight. And my friend was not, she was like five, six. So she had to wait outside in the lobby for me, but it was great to have her there as support. And so I did the audition and I hadn't danced like every, you know, I wasn't dancing every single day like I was in college. And so I was, I felt, I remember feeling like a little bit out of shape, but I had lost some weight that summer just from dieting. I was doing Weight Watchers or something like that. And so I was feeling decent about my body. And so I made it all the way through the audition and came to the end where, you know, they asked us if we would go into the locker room because they wanted to look at our bodies. And I remember saying to my friend, should I do it? And she was like, I guess if you want the job, that's kind of a part of it. And I realized like, yeah. And so I went into the locker room where we had to just strip down, like basically just kind of pull the top of our leotard down so that they could look at our breast because the show that I was in as many of the old school Las Vegas shows were had elements of nudity in some of in some of the numbers and very classy very tasteful beautiful I used to joke that it was like Disney with boobs because it was just very wholesome and the only thing it was, it was almost more like fine art. Like we were never doing anything suggestive. We were always like dignified, classy ladies <laughs> who were just beautiful and, you know, looking almost like a vision from a dream with dripping in diamonds with the big feathers and diamonds. So they wanted to look at us because there were some rules. You couldn't have any enhanced assets. So you had to be natural and they were looking for a certain aesthetic so the show had 50 girls in it. Some some cases there was more, but basically it had 50 girls in the show and we were all made to look alike. So when you're in the chorus, even though everyone's body was different, we were supposed to look as close as possible. And there was even times after I got into the show that friends and family would come see me and they would be like, we don't know which one you are because everyone was wearing the same makeup. Everyone was wearing the same wigs. And so it was, and there were so many of us with all the costumes and the huge sets. And so it would sometimes be hard to find us on stage. And so that was the thing was that we were not supposed to stand out. We were supposed to be just all these beautiful girls who were, you know, gorgeous and perfect. And those were the standards. So at the, after the audition ended, the person who was in charge, you know, said, well, when can you move to Vegas? And I was cocky and I was 22 years old. And I said, oh, tomorrow, whenever. (laughs) And so she said, okay, well, we'll get back to you. And I received a call maybe like 10 days later and they just said, okay, when can you be in Vegas? You know, we'd like to offer you a contract. And I just remember being so excited. I remember I didn't even think anything through. I just said, yes. (laughs) 
And I was still living at my parents' house and I had no money saved. And I remember running upstairs and it was because it was late. They, they always called later because of the time change. And so it was maybe 11 o'clock at night in Michigan when I received the call because they do a show from seven to nine. So, you know, nine o'clock in Vegas, or maybe it was like eight o'clock during the first show that they called. And so really that was like 11 o'clock in Michigan. So I ran upstairs and I woke up my parents and I said, I'm going to be a Las Vegas showgirl, which of course was like, there were some questions that were going to be asked after that. And so my parents, like I said, were very supportive. I made it happen. I walked in, I quit my job. I packed up my life in my car and my dad and I went across the country and when we got to Vegas, it was just so intoxicating. It was mesmerizing the lights, the excitement. There's just a buzz. Like when you're driving in on the freeway and, and it's just all desert. And then you see this little treasure chest of lights and action. And it, it just was so exciting. And so I knew I was going to live there and I was very excited. I got myself an apartment and with my parents' help, I got all set up and then I began rehearsals for the show. And we would have to rehearse from the show. Would, so there was two shows we did a night. So we did 12 shows a week. We worked six days a week. And the day that we were dark was Fridays because people would be coming into town and generally they wouldn't always want to see a show on the first night they were there. So Friday was a good day for us to be off. And then the rest of the week we would rehearse when the show was over. So the show ended at about, there was a seven o'clock show and then a 1030 show. And so the show ended right around midnight. So we'd start rehearsals around 1230. And so I was rehearsing from like, 1 a.m., you know, 12.30, 1 a.m. until 4 a.m. And with the time change, I mean, that was literally like the middle of the night thinking about the Midwest. And that's when I was learning the show and getting ready to be put into the actual live performance. So in the beginning, it was just all excitement and they were hard on us, but they were also, it was almost like walking into a sorority. And some of the people that I've met at that time in my life are still my lifelong friends. The bonds that we made there were just incredible. But having 50 women with all different ages and all different personalities and all different walks of life and people from all around the globe, it wasn't just Americans. There was many different people from all over the place there. It was just, it was a new world. And so I was, I walked into this world. I walked into the glitz and glamour and started modeling and dated photographers. And it just, there was so much that happened in such a short period of time. And the biggest thing was, that's when I really began to, you know, have this fascination with my body as a tool. And so I really realized in Las Vegas nobody cared about if I was a nice person or a good person. I mean, I shouldn't say nobody, maybe some people, but my value was really on my appearance, like my body, my face. That was my moneymaker. That's how I was going to get booked. That's how I was going to be successful. That's how I was going to get jobs. That's how I was going to get respect, praise, adoration, right? All the things that I wanted. And so I really made it my priority while I was there to just do whatever I had to do. I remember thinking, whatever I have to do to keep this, like, I don't want to come here and have this and lose it and what a loser I would be. And so I just became, and that's a very dangerous place to be because things like our appearance and our body, they're not uh, for sure. Our bodies are amazing, wondrous things, but they're also shifting and changing constantly. 
you know, our uteruses are aligned with the moon cycle. So it's like, there's a bigger plan sometimes for our body and, and than just what we think it is. And so I punished myself a lot. If I would do things that I now consider human, like wanting to eat and not wanting to work out for, you know, and then dance and then do thousands of stairs every night. If I wanted to take a day off or I just felt like I needed rest, I would punish myself. I didn't really feel like I deserved happiness unless if I was maintaining that thinness. So it's like when someone else was telling me that I looked amazing and I was doing such a good job in the show, then I was on top of the world. But if I was getting any kind of feedback that was negative, then I just, I was horrible and I had to punish myself. And I really got into some dangerous territory with that kind of thinking because being attached to someone else's opinion, it's not the truth. Like other people are subjective. And so I really lost track of my gut because it was gone, (laughs) but really my intuitive gut, I lost track of me. I lost track of what I thought was right. I lost track of my own personal truth because the only truth that I had was what I believed, which was the truth that somebody else was telling me that was often on their own agenda and was being spun for their own purposes. So I forgot about the fact that I could believe in my own self and I could have my own personal truth of what what I thought was true about myself and my body. And so I went through a lot of turmoil just depending on other people's opinions for my own value and my own worth. And so it just got to the point where it was just getting so hard to keep up that perfection. And it was getting so hard on me beating me up. I was the one that was inflicting it. I mean, other people were influencing it, but I was the one that was really like kept beating myself. And so over time, even though I loved what I was doing and it was amazing, I just started to feel like an imposter because I just felt like no matter what I did, I I was never getting everyone's approval, which is accurate. How can you ever expect to get everyone's approval? But because I had forgotten about my own intuition, I had forgotten about my own life purpose and my own karma and my own truth, I just based everything on what other people were telling me. So the tide turned and I, w- I kind of lost a little bit of favor with the company because I had gained some weight from when I had first started. And again, when you're excited and you're motivated, it's very easy to deprive your body. And But after years of doing that, it just, it was getting old and I was like hungry and I wanted a hamburger and I wanted to like, you know, have normal things. I wanted to have a relationship and get married. And as, as other things started to become important to me, that trying to keep up that perfect facade became less important. When I look at that now, looking back, I'm like, yeah, like I was starting to go in the right direction. But back then, if you would have asked me or asked anyone around me, man, was I going in a bad direction because I wasn't following the path anymore. I wasn't maintaining my vessel or maintaining my, as as they would always say, like your body is your instrument. I wasn't maintaining my instrument. So like if you would ask people then like, oh, Jessica's going down a dark path. She gained five pounds. But looking at it now from where I'm at, I'm like, yeah, I wanted to go out to eat with my boyfriend and have dinner and have nice dinners out. And so I gained five pounds because I had, you know, steak a couple of times, (laughs) you know, and so it's like, it's like very interesting how seeing that and, and labeling the labels of like good and bad. 
And so eating is just eating. There's no emotions, you know, there's no feelings attached to it. But I would label myself like good or bad based on where I was at with my body, based on what was happening. And because I had chosen a profession that glorified this toxic body image and basically demanded it as a prerequisite to even being successful in the industry, you know, it was, it was even harder because it was also tied to my money, to my livelihood, to like moving across the country, leaving my whole family and all my friends. And it was just, it was just a very interesting time where it was exciting. I was living my dreams, but I really wasn't being authentic. I wasn't being myself. I was being somebody else's version of me for many, many years. And eventually it just got too hard And the real me was trying to come in. The real me was trying to shine through. And I just decided that it was enough. I think also, you know, my contract was up and they were not going to renew my contract. And I just said, okay, fine. So I decided to move to Chicago. And I had a friend who had an improv company I was going to do. I I was like, well, I'll just be funny because I'm funny. I've been an actress. You know, I've done a lot of things. I know I'm talented. I'm going to just go do this. And I moved to Chicago. I was dating a guy at the time. We we went together. No plan, really. Just, you know, again, being young and just ambitious and hungry. And, And I was hungry. Let me tell you, I wanted burgers. I wanted fries. I wanted that deep dish pizza with the gooey layers of like 20 cheese. I wanted it all in beer, all the beer that I could possibly drink because I wasn't going to deprive myself anymore. So I moved to Chicago and I started up on my new career in comedy slash drinking because drinking was a big part of like my neighborhood. It was a part of my friends. It was like what people did in Chicago. I thought I was Carrie Bradshaw and like having a cocktail every night was cool And when I drank, I felt good about myself. And I actually was able to drown out the inner critic that was inside. I was able to feel really good about who I was. And I was, and I thought that that was the authentic me. So I just wanted to drink more and more because I just wanted to feel that feeling and not have to feel all of the pressure of trying to be perfect and trying to be this and trying to be that. And so I lived in Chicago for about three years. And, you know, while I was there, I would say that was probably the darkest stage or or getting to be the darkest stage because the drinking was really starting to mess with my body and my mind. And I was becoming sick and alcoholism runs in my family. And I knew that I knew I had a history for it. I knew that genetically I had a predisposition to, to have a problem with alcohol But I just pushed it off and thought, well, this is just life and this is what people do. And so, you know, I enjoyed myself. I had fun, but I also, you know, started to get out of control and have nights where I would black out and I just didn't know what I was doing. And I would drink to the point where I was sick because I didn't know how to stop. Because once I took a sip of alcohol, like everything in my world was right. And I loved it. It just, it tasted so good. And I just loved it. I loved everything about drinking. And so it was just like when I would start, why would I ever want to stop? I'm going to stop when I either pass out or throw up. Like I didn't know how to just have one drink. And so then I would shame myself over that because people would say, can't you drink a drink and then drink a water? Or like, why can't you just have one drink or, you know, and it, and I was like, cause I just can't, I just want it. I just love it. I can't. And so, you know, for a long time, I just, I like, 
functioned and kept it under wraps, even though I knew I was losing control. I knew inside that, you know, this wasn't right. And I was, and I was scared about it, but I just kept functioning. I didn't lose my job. I made it to work every day. I mean, I'd throw up on my way there and then I'd go in and, and go and work a full day and no one would know, or I, I thought that they didn't know, but it got to the point where I realized that it was, it was beginning to control me because when I was working or whatever I was doing, I was like, okay, how many more minutes until I'm done with work and I can have a drink. And then it was like, you know, one drink until I couldn't drink anymore. And and so every day was becoming a binge and it was just, and then you wake up and you're shaky. You guys know, you probably had a bad experience with drinking. Imagine having that bad experience every day of your life. And so it was getting to be that point and my relationships were a mess. I was having so many problems finding the right kind of guy because I was attracting guys who were on the same level as me, the same vibration, which was like, I'm not good enough and I'm insecure. And I would date a lot of guys who we might call losers. I mean, I I hate saying that about anybody because I think everyone is always on a path and like, I don't like saying that now, but at the time, I mean, they were, they were definitely people who didn't have their lives together. I didn't think I deserved a good guy. I didn't think I deserved a guy who had a career and was stable and had his own place and like had money in the bank. Like I was like, oh, that's way above me. And so inside, I thought if I date these people who are like on my level or worse, then, you know, I'm okay. And so I looked for a lot of relationships that were really unhealthy. I dated other alcoholics. I just... I I just wanted to be with somebody who made me feel better about myself. And that's really the majority of of what I was looking for. And if I did happen to meet a good guy or a nice guy, I wasn't interested in him. You know, I was like, oh, I just see you as a friend. There's no spark, right? I only have a spark for someone who doesn't have a checking account and drives a motorcycle and like has never had a a long-term relationship. Those are the people that I spark for. But any guy who, you know, is really trying to make something of himself and, you know, has some faith, has some, you know, intuition, does something good for himself, like, yeah, we could be, maybe we're just better friends. And so I was toxic. Every part of me was toxic. And I had a best friend and a a friend that I really uh, cared about. And she was like my partner in crime. And, And our relationship was struggling. We were roommates. And I was jealous. I was jealous of her and my body changed. So let's, let's not forget the ever long battle that I was having with my body. What do you think happened when I was drinking and doing all this stuff? Of course I gained weight. So I gained maybe 30 or 40 pounds, which sounds like a lot, but when I was as thin as I was, I mean, I'm very tall and very muscular. So to be as thin as I was when I first arrived in Chicago, I was unhealthy unhealthy. I was, I was very skinny. And so gaining 30 or 40 pounds really put me at like a normal weight. And it's even less than I weigh now. And I felt horrible. I couldn't believe that I had let myself be unperfect. I couldn't believe that I had put on this weight, even though I was doing everything toxic to my body. I was like eating like crap. I was drinking. I was like staying out late. I was just doing, you know, I, I was doing abuse to my body. I was being promiscuous and unsafe with partners, people that I didn't even know because it just felt good in the moment. And I wanted so desperately to be loved that I was like taking whatever I could get. And it was just, when I look back on it, I cringe because I had some really good times in Chicago, but 
it's just my, my level of standards for myself and my self-worth was so low. And the saddest thing about it was I thought I was doing fine. I mean, I really knew I wasn't, but I think that I could have gone on living like that for the rest of my life. And I see people like that. And it's so sad because they know deep down that, you know, this is not the way that life was supposed to be. This is not the life that they intended, but they're just like, oh, well, screw it. I think I'll just have another drink. And they just keep going on this like treadmill of destruction and everything in their life is, is getting, you know, demolished, but they're just like, I don't know any other way to be, or I'm afraid to try to be some other way, or I just don't think I'm worth it. And so all of those things were happening for me and I knew it deep down. And my main friendship relationship that I had was crumbling. And I just said, I got to leave. I got to go home. I got to go back to my family and, and go back to Michigan. And so I moved back home. I took like a regular job and my whole life, everyone's always told me, just get a regular job, you know? And I just, I never wanted a regular job. I mean, I've had them, I've had many jobs, but I always knew that there was, I had dreams and ambitions and there was things that I wanted to do. And there was things that, you know, were exciting and important. And my values were always like, I want to do this. And even if it's complicated or hard or whatever. So I moved back to Michigan and kind of said, okay, I'm going to settle down. And then everything just erupted. I got into another bad relationship and I realized that the quality of the people that I would, I was picking sick people because I was sick. And so when my last relationship was, which was with somebody who I had known for a very, very long time on and off, we grew up together. And when I realized that that person was sick and that I was sick and, you know, that my life could not keep going like this, I hit my rock bottom and I just said, I'm not perfect oh my gosh, I just realized I'm human, (laughs) but I'm, I feel a lot of shame about this. And so I think probably the best thing that I can do is start to control. And so sometimes that's what we do when we feel fearful rather than like giving ourselves what we need, which is compassion. We start to control or or think that we can control. So I said, I'm just going to control my life. I'm going to go on a diet. I'm going to clean everything up. And, and I see this happen a lot, especially around January at New Year's time, where it's like, I got this. I got this year. I'm going to save a bunch of money. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to do this. I'm going to clean up my life. And, you're, and you start making all of these resolutions. But they're not really from a place of love or compassion or understanding. They're not tapping into your deeper purpose or your soul. They're just almost like resolutions that are like regiments and punishments and they involve deprivation and they involve really unrealistic expectations. And so that's, that's kind of what I did when I started doing that. And I realized that I wanted to control my drinking. I realized that I couldn't and that it was controlling me. And that was the first time that it occurred to me that I actually might really have a problem. And it's not just that I was drinking too much, like too often. Like I still thought, oh, if I just, you know, stop drinking uh, and I only drink on the weekends, then I'm sure, you know, it's fine. And I told myself all kinds of lies and all kinds of stories like, well, I've never gotten in trouble and I've never this and that, so I must be okay. But when I finally started trying to do all this control and clean up my life, I just, I couldn't. 
And no matter, and I'd always been really good at powering through and no matter how much I wanted to power through, I just couldn't do it. And so that was when I kind of had an awakening and I realized that if I was going to get anywhere that I was going to have to love my body, I was going to have to love myself and that kicking myself while I was down hadn't been helping me along. And I found programs and I found people and I found a therapist and I clung to my family and I took a year to myself. I didn't date. I didn't sleep with anybody. I didn't do anything. I, I mean, the only person that I saw was my best friend and my family and, you know, some of my other friends, but I didn't go out. I didn't go to bars. I got myself to meetings. I started working with a sponsor in, in the in the program, and then I also got a therapist, and I got a steady job, and I just started working one day at a time towards unraveling this mess that I had created, and I wasn't as bad as a lot of people. I really wasn't. You know, if the train to demolition, you know, I might have got off at like stop one or two. I could have rode that train all the way down. But thankfully, I realized, like, this is not who I am. This is not my true self. This is not how I want to be and how I want to live. And so I'm grateful that my story didn't, like, have a ton of devastation. And it got to the point where the bottom that I hit was so low that, you know, I had no other choice. It was I had a choice and I was choosing to live a better life because for the first time I was thinking maybe possibly I deserved it. Like, maybe I could just pull it off. Maybe I could pull off being happy. And so I became willing to believe that my body was okay and that I deserved something more and that my life could be something more and that my value maybe was something more than just the way that I looked. And, you know, that had tied into every aspect, like my, you know, having to be sexually desirable to men and having to like be adored. And it all tied into my personality and who I was. But I realized that like, there there was more to me and that I could probably live a life based around more than just my appearance and, and that. So like I said, I took a year off. And then, you know, I began getting interested in like coaching and therapy and all of this. And so it took me I, it took me like five years to really work through and, and, and it's still a work in progress. I don't, I don't think I've totally worked through all of my life, but you know, it took me time. It took time to work through it and time to build and time to realize that I really felt like I was worth it. And I found yoga. And and one of the things about yoga was that I, it wasn't like dance where someone was constantly telling me, you're not good enough. You know, it was like a celebration of my body where it was like, oh, pay attention. And and maybe if you want, move your arm over here. And it wasn't like, you better put your arm there and it better be, you know, skinny and it better be 13 inches long and whatever, you know, it was like, it was yoga was like, it was so explorative. And I began to like tap in. And, you know, when they'd say like, meditate and listen, I remember thinking like, okay, when are we doing the next thing? Like I, I, I couldn't slow down, but over time I began to appreciate the breathing and the slow times. And I began to think, okay, well, at least while I'm in here, I'm doing something. I had to erase my mentality that like a workout has to be hard. It has, I have to be in misery. I have to be punished through it. And if I'm not punished through it, then it's not a workout. I had to like get that out of my head and realize that like, this is a workout for my soul. This is a workout for a different way. 
And so over time, I began to have standards for myself. Over time, I began to really live my life in a way that was coming from my true soul and connect with a higher power and, and, and find out what my higher self, which I say like with a capital S, what that really wanted and, and what my soul's purpose was and, and why I was here. And so eventually I realized that I could take all of my unique talents, which make me unique and extraordinary and, you know, that are very specific to just me, I could take all of those things and I could use them to help other people. I could use them in a business and I could use them in a way that wasn't just about getting a regular job and like working for the man and like living this life that to me would feel less than not. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying to where I wasn't to what I wanted. It wasn't, it didn't light me up. It didn't make me shine to think about like being stable in in that way. But I knew that I could take all of these character flaws and find ways to make them uniquely me as long as it was serving my higher good or working with the divine. And so once I got on that page, then I really had the idea of what does it mean to be brazen? And brazen is like, I'm confident, I'm brazen, I'm pushing against what you think, I don't care what you think. And I said, yeah, that's what I, that's, that's who I want to be. And I wasn't her yet. I really wasn't. But I was like, I think I could be her. I think by surrounding myself with people like her, I could really, I could, I could learn to be brazen. And so that was like my mantra. And then, you know, I realized that there, there was something really beautiful about that that being brazen and being uniquely you and not apologizing for who you are, feeling like you have to abide by anybody else's standards, but your own, like that was badass and that was brazen and that was beautiful. And the people who I can think of that are the most beautiful are the people who are confident and happy and know who they are, not airbrushed and skinny and deprived and miserable and needing a hamburger. And that was me for so many years. So I just, I really, that's kind of where the the name for my business, Brazenly Beautiful came from, is I realized that I was worth this. I was worth being able to step into this role as being empowering and be able to help other people. And maybe if something that I said made somebody else feel some comfort or realize that there was a different way, like that they didn't have to live shaming and blaming and hurting their body or doing things that were disrespectful to their body because, you know, there's another way and that you actually can be happy and you can live in another way that's human and it's not perfect. And so I just decided that this was my message in throughout the last five years um, and even longer, really, that I've been living back in Michigan. I guess I've been here for about eight years now. It's been a, it's been a, a progress, a work in progress. And Once I got my standard up, I attracted a person who was up on that level. And I did end up finding a beautiful relationship that's better than any relationship that I've ever had. I found somebody who, you know, understands me and our relationship is based on honesty. We don't drink. So there's never been any kind of like gray area. And one of the things that I used to think when I was drinking was that my true self would come out when I would drink because I was able to like turn off the inner critic and let my inhibitions go and my inhibitions and my inner critic and my anxiety, that wasn't me. And so if I could get rid of that and just drink, then that was the real me. And that's kind of accurate, except that then something else took over and that wasn't drinking was not the real me either. So what I actually realized is that the real me 
is like none of that. <laughs> the real me is something else that is is my soul. It's something that is bigger than me and it's connected to the divine. And so the real me is like what happens when there is no drinking. It's been, I mean, I've been sober for five years now and it's been the best five years of my life. Even though that time before when I was having everything and achieving everything and looking incredible and being a model and being a showgirl and all that was very exciting. And I can say that those are good times and a lot of them were good times and that I'm grateful for it. This has truly been the best time of my life because I I feel that now I'm blessed to who I'm supposed to be. And I feel inspired to want to share with other people that there is another way. And I found a peace and a serenity and an acceptance through yoga that is unlike anything else. And so when, after my husband and I got married, we decided to have a child, I became pregnant and I knew that 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 was going to be the time. There's no more excuses. Like I'm bringing another life into the world and I'm stopping these painful cycles, which get passed down genetically from generation to generation and these limited ways of thinking. I want to at least curb them if I can, before I bring this, you know, beautiful person into the world, before I'm in charge of another soul for right now. Not that we're ever really in charge of anyone else because everyone has their own path, even our children. But I just said, like, this is it. This is the time to step into this power. And I had been feeling that calling for for a while before I was finally like, hey, I think I'm going to go off and have a business. And, and there was pieces of it that were unsettled, like finances and insurance and like, you know, all of that kind of stuff and moving and all. So all of that had to kind of get taken care of. So the responsible thing was for the first time I was doing the responsible thing by like setting this up, setting everything and and getting it really into the right place so that it could work rather than what I had done in the past, which was just to fly by the seat of my pants and jump into whatever I wanted because I wanted it and being impulsive. And so like this business and my relationship and my child, like all of this was more, I would say, put together in a way that was thoughtfully planned and with the guidance of my higher power. And rather than just my will saying, this is what I want, this is what I'm going to do. It was like, it felt like it was coming to me from the universe. So I have a daughter now and she's 15 months old and she is the light of my life. And my life has never been better. And my business, I now have the opportunity to really take it and to be a role model for her and to model you know, body confidence for the next generation. And I want her to grow up knowing that there's another way to live because she'll have her own choices to make. And I want her to know that there's options. And I want to be there for people who feel like the right thing for them to do is to shame themselves or to beat themselves up or to punish themselves because society says that that is okay. And I want you to know that it's not okay. And it's okay to not be okay with that. And I want to just be here for anybody who's struggling with their worth or their value or their body and or even, you know, drinking or anything. And it doesn't have to be drinking. You know, we lean into things as a coping skill. I drank as a coping skill because it helped calm my inner critic. It helped calm my inner demons. So for me, it worked as a great coping skill until it didn't. And so, you know, a lot of things we lean into, whether it's food issues and binging and purging or 
anorexia or any, I mean, it could be food issues. It could be gambling. It could be sex with inappropriate partners, or as they say, like a a love addict. There's just so many things that it could be that we lean into that we think that we're helping ourselves. We think that we're coping. We think we're treating ourselves, but really treating yourself is treating yourself with respect and dignity and owning up to your mistakes and knowing that you're going to make them, but that you're going to grow from them and asking for guidance from something that's bigger than you. So this is the life that I live now. And it's not perfect by any means. I still struggle with trying to be the good girl, trying to be perfect, trying to be beautiful. Sometimes when things are like out of order, I I think, oh, well, maybe I should go put on a pretty outfit and things will be better (laughs) because something just feels comfortable about being able to control one aspect. So I I go back to that thinking that, that if I can control the way that my body looks or appears to other people, that I can change my life. But then that's why yoga always brings me back to the source. And yoga brings me back to the anchor. The heartbeat of life is really looking within and and asking what is my destiny rather than create, you know, saying, I know what it is. And asking and being curious about life and what is the best life for me. And so that's where I'm at. And I'm just happy to have this avenue. I'm so grateful for technology and for the way that this year has changed and shifted our lives because I think people are more open to hearing other people's stories and, and just listening to podcasts and things like that. And I'm just so grateful to have this. But I wanted to take the time to really share with you the nitty gritty about how I got here why I do what I do, and who I am. So I hope you enjoyed the story. Please go to my website if you want more information and reach out to me. I would love to hear your personal story, your body story of where you are, or maybe, you know, how you overcame all of the things that creep up for us when it comes to insecurity with our bodies, or how you're still working on overcoming it. So please feel free to reach out and know that there is another way you can live a life that's beautiful and wonderful and mind, body, and spirit aligned and that you deserve that. So I hope that this inspires you and motivates you to look within and accept yourself as you are every single day. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is produced by Jessica Van Valkenberg. For more information about body confidence, visit www.brazinglybeautiful.com. And don't forget to download your free 20 body positive affirmation cards there. It's always a beautiful day to love yourself, gorgeous. Sending you tons of love and light.